Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. Despite the shambolic Tory government, Labour is still trailing in the polls. This week we ask, is Corbyn cracking up? Plus, is wearing a hijab necessarily oppressive? And last, have younger members of the royal family bought into a narrative of victimhood? So first up, is Labour splitting? Despite everything that's ailed this Tory government, Labour is still trailing behind in some polls, and others show that the Conservative Party would still win a general election if one were held today. So what's wrong with the Labour Party? Nick Cohen writes in this week's cover piece that the cult of Corbyn is cracking up. He joins me now, together with Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman, to discuss. So Nick, you paint quite a depressing picture of the Labour Party at the moment. What's going on? Well, and the Tory Party. I mean, I think as a spectator podcast, you've got to emphasise everything you can say about the Labour Party, you can say about the Conservative Party as well. Well, it depends where you are. It's Well, what's going on is there's a split coming, but the splitters are split among themselves, so to speak. There's going to be, perhaps quite soon, who knows, you're dealing with politicians about eight or so breaking away. They don't, from the Labour Party? From the Labour Party, yes. They don't have a name for a new party. Have they come up with any rubbish names? Well, I, you, know, you do You do sit there and you wander and you think, oh, God, they're going to hire some kind of brand consultancy and call themselves Egg or Orange or something. But no, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. And from the point of view of the people who think what's happening with the Labour Party, their lack of internationalism, their anti-Europeanism, their personality cults, their anti-Semitism, eight seems a rather pathetic number in a way. But then on top of that... You talk to lots of MPs, including, um, I spoke to as many MPs as I could for this piece, including MPs who you'd have thought, I would have thought anyway. Well, you know, they, they, they'll be going, and they're not, because they're social. I think there's an important division between people who just want a new party and people who want, who are social democrats and want a social democratic party, or what they want the old Labour Party back in the way. And they're staying and saying, well, we, if, if we ever split, it would be en masse, and it would be a kind of Labour Party Mark II. And But, you know, I didn't write it in the normal, I hope not anyway, the normal rather sneery journalist way, because it just seems, and perhaps I'm letting my hopes or my views colour my judgment, it just seems to me that, there's, that we're in a rolling national crisis. And the notion that while everything else is changing, the two-party duopoly will stay the same it may be true. I mean, it may be in a year's time, you know, Stephen, me, you will all sit here and say, oh, well, look, whatever else has happened, Labour and Tory parties have survived and the choice of the next election in England, anyway, and Wales is essentially, are you Labour, are you Tory? How you may not like it. But it just seems to me at least problematic to say in the bluff, confident way that people do, oh, well, new parties are doomed, splits will never go anywhere that while everything else changes, the two-party system will say, will say the same. That at least seems to me to be arguable. Stephen, do you think we are approaching a point where there's going to be a realignment in British politics? I'm not sure about a realignment. It feels like it's one of those things we kind of speak continually of this idea it might happen. There definitely will be... Yeah, there definitely is a group of people who've already kind of psychologically packed their bags and have said goodbye. The big question is whether or not it is more successful than the SDP were, although, of course, you, there is an argument to be made in the SDP, as indeed with UKIP, were actually both incredibly mm. successful mm. parties. But yes, I think we know that there will be an attempt at a realignment. I guess the open question is whether or not it will go up like the rocket and come down like the stick. And do you think it is just going to be 
eight Labour MPs who leave, or do you think there will be waves of MPs exiting the party? I think and who are those eight MPs? There are six names you hear sort of repeatedly when you speak to Labour MPs, regardless of whether or not they themselves are on the fence. People who go, you know, who, you know the people who the average Labour MP would put on a watch list, as it were, are Angela Smith, the Labour MP for Penistone and Stockbridge, Gavin Shuker, the Labour MP for Luton North, Chakra Muna, Mike Gapes, Chris Leslie and Luciana Berger. And then there are kind of other people who are seen as sympathetic, but those are the names which people in the PLP expect to see on the list of any breakaway. The crucial thing is, is that what unifies those six MPs is they all have a specific view about Brexit, a shared view about not just an inability to eradicate anti-Semitism from the Labour Party, but an unwillingness, and have all become much more willing to say things like, this is not the party I joined, Labour has changed. And I think once you start saying things like that, it becomes harder to stay. The thing that the Labour leadership has done a, a very good job of is whenever it, whenever something has happened which could cause a split to spread beyond that quite narrow band of the parliamentary party, they have immediately stamped on it. So let's take, for example, the motion of no confidence against against Luciana Berger. Luciana Berger is by no means the, the first, I don't think even the 10th Labour MP to face that type of proceedings. However, she essentially is the first one who people in the parliamentary party who are not ideologically aligned with that group in the PLP would have gone, whoa, I'm not going to be a part of a Labour party which does things like that. So I think a lot still depends on essentially what the cause for the decision... Yes, yeah, so those six people are almost certainly going to leave, or at least most of them will leave the Labour Party. But I think in terms of the size of the split, one of the big questions is what is the sort of final reason, which of course has huge implications for how we cover it, right? If you had a group of people who left because Jeremy Corbyn had never backed a second referendum, it's a lot harder to be sympathetic to a cause that cannot get a majority in this parliament anyway. It's much easier to be sympathetic to somebody, someone who says that this is a party which has failed to honour its anti-racist heritage. And then, of course, the other variable is who gets deselected. So part of the advantage the SDP had is that as well as the gang of four who had a principled and ideological reason to leave, their ranks were bolstered by people who were driven out of town, which meant that there were more of them. The problem they had is although, and we see this pattern now, right, although there are some people who are in trouble with their local parties for ideological reasons, you have then and now, you had MPs who were in trouble because, even more so in the 80s, because they, you know, they didn't visit, they weren't there, they had been very bad landlords, as it were. And it it did mean that you had a very unimpressive long tail for the SDP. And it may be that you get that again, that you get people moving when they are ran out of town, as it were. And this is why the other big variable is, because we don't know when the election will be, is how long will this party have to to make a success of itself? To find a name, if nothing else. Nick, do you think that it could be, as Stephen says, a a sort of boutique Brexit party rather than something with a wider cause? Well, we'll see. I I want to disagree with something Stephen said or implied in in, this matter of emphasis. I do believe that the media in general, which is now with Brexit, has now got on the thing, well, if you want to cover Brexit, you know, you go to Doncaster and you talk to working class leavers. And the Labour leadership in particular is just underestimating the fury about Brexit in Liberal Britain. I mean, working on the, on the Observer, which was one of the few papers, has just been against it the whole time. Not, well, you know, we'll see how it goes. You, you can feel it. I mean, it is, it is hot rage. 
And I think that rage is very destructive for the Labour Party, which has been trying a bit to be like the Lib Dems used to be before 2010. You know, the people say if the Lib Dems were right wing in in Labour seats and left wing in Conservative seats, they did well enough. They got, you know, got 50 odd MPs and then they had to choose. Hmm. And although it's not quite the same for Labour because they're not in government, because if you like, the political nation, the politically aware nation has expanded because of this rolling crisis we're in. You know, Labour are going to have to choose, are they a pro-Brexit or an anti-Brexit party in the broad sense? And it looks pretty clear they're going to choose their pro-Brexit party. And I think the repercussions of that will be a bit like you know, Nick Clegg's decisions to ally with Conservatives, or it's at least possible to see that. This, this is why I'm, I'm just... Everything about me is a journalist. You, you look at the, the, the party that's you know, coming, egg or orange or whatever it is, and I think, Jesus Christ, you know, all my satirical instincts arise. But I'm just, it's like we're sitting here in the studio and there's a hurricane raging through central London and we don't talk about it and we work on the assumption that when we would go outdoors again, there'll be no damage. I just don't see how you can be that complacent at the moment. I do think that... Brexit, which won't be over on the 29th, probably won't be over in four or five years' time, is just realigning politics. And, and that realignment fits with the spirit of the age where class no longer determines how you vote, its values, it's, it fits so neatly that both Labour and, I would say, the Tories, because you know, every, everything that Stephen and I are saying about Labour applies to the Tories, they're trying to deselect Nick mm. Bowles. They are becoming a narrow rather extreme party again and one thing that people who are talking about setting up this new party did say to me we want to be a place where conservative mps can come which whereas a, a social democratic party which ideologically appeals more to me probably wouldn't be Stephen, how does the labor leadership view all this talk of splitters well so there's a really interesting it's not a wholly generational divide, but there's an interesting, I would say, primarily generational divide. Then there's a generation of senior Labour advisor and, and a Chatter Cabinet member who's bought into the project, who came of age in 1983, and for whom that split occupies a similar place in their internal demonology to, say, the 1992 shadow budget does for, for, for Blairites of a certain vintage. And they are quite worried about a split, which is why they do these various things to kind of contain it to that sort of fairly narrow sort of bit of ideological real estate. You then speak to sort of almost everyone, and again, it's not a perfect uh, generational split, but you know, anyone who has come of age in the student movement or has got people who got selected for the first time under Ed Miliband, they are much more kind of, yeah, well, look, if, if this was going to do us damage. Yeah. yeah, because the, the really important sort of factor in the present Brexit moment is the failure of the Liberal Democrats to place at the last election. You had so many Labour MPs who were saying, we've got to back a second referendum or I'll be got rid of. Not by my activists, but by, by the voters. Obviously, because... I think primarily because of Tim Farron's own personal views about homosexuality, they failed to do that. And it does mean that there is this complacency in a lot of the mm. Labour Party about the ability of any pro-Remain force yeah, to... I, I was very struck researching this piece, talking to, you know, no names, no Paxwell, but a very senior pe figure in Labour, nice man, we get on very, very well. And he said, yeah, but Nick, you've got to understand, you know, our Remain seats, we've got massive majorities in them. We can afford to lose two, three, four thousand votes there, but leave seats the one with with, with the tight tight majority. So 
it just makes political sense to ignore our remain voters. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, sounds rather complacent. To Stephen, me, I mean, also the, the other sort of big problem that a lot of Labour MPs have is that even if you are, you know, in a, a seat which voted heavily to leave and you're a Labour MP, there are very few people who even half of their electorate will actually have been leave voters. I mean, so take, say, Ashfield, right? Case in mm-hmm. point, teeny tiny majority, voted heavily to leave. Every analysis indicates in Gloria de Piero's, she, she has this problem, she cannot win if she loses leave voters, she cannot win if she loses remain voters. We, we don't even need to be in a situation in which a new pro-European force wins that seat if it gains 6,000 yeah. uh, pro-remainder. So, so I think there is a huge amount of kind of people over-reading the failure of the Liberal Democrats to yeah. to make a, a breakthrough. Equally, though, because, as you say, both parties have this problem, the thing which would worry me if I were in CCHQ is we know that there is a large chunk of affluent, socially liberal, economically liberal people who quite like David Cameron, who are horrified by Brexit, really dislike Jeremy Corbyn, and for the most part did stick with the Conservatives last time. Mm. That's such a good point. People forget... There were you know, three million, I think, right, Conservative Remain voters. Again, there's all kinds of bits of Britain that are being written out of the of the script, the media script at the moment. You never say, you never, you never say, you, know, you turn on the news. Thing. Today we're looking at Conservative Remain voters, millions of them. You know, how are they feeling? What are they going to do? You and know. you mentioned in your piece, Nick, that there's a, a succession problem after Corbyn. Who do you think might might manage to take over from him? Well, I mean, the point I was trying to make is that you do have. And this is not just a cheap drive. There is a pers- there was a personality cult built up around Corbyn, and the problem with personality cults is what happens when your personality goes. And you look at the people at the top of Labour, Corbyn's pushing seventy, McDonald's not far behind. You know these are not young politicians, and and then you have to look at people behind them. You have to look at Seamus Mill, and you have to look at Andrew Murray. Essentially, the old commu- the, not the old Communist Party, the Stalinist wing of the old Communist Party. Who is a guy? And it's not a guy, it's Rebecca Long Davis that they always put forward. But then if you look at who's going out in the constituencies, who's on manoeuvres and doing the rubber chicken circuit, you know, look at Emily Formbrew's Twitter feed, it's week in, week out. Look at Angela Rayner's Twitter feed, it's the same. And they're not quite with the programme. You know, Formbury, how sincere her conversion to Corbynism is, is is very much in doubt. And she's showing vague signs of independence, saying, well, you know, it's wrong to just say Maduro's wonderful when there are three million Venezuelans starving. Angela Rayner started out like that, but is very much her own woman. So what do they do? What do they do? And one thing, to go back to something Stephen said, is, and this is speculation, is they have to, they have to deselect MPs. Because however much MPs are despised and direct democracy is getting round them through referendums of party members, MPs in the end have a power. If there is a Labour government or a Labour coalition of the SNP, there could be the Labour equivalent of the European Reform Group very easily, very quickly. They have to deselect while they have the power. And then deselection throws up all the problems Stephen says. You know, your, your deselected candidate stands as an independent. Your deselected candidate goes off and joins a new party. So... The succession problem then provokes a political problem. Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the reason why it's, you know, because even if we were to list the number of people who were ideologically opposed to every facet of Corbynism, we'd get a bigger number than six or eight. The reason why it's so small is because most people do think that Corbynism is a one-candidate proposition. 
and essentially the kind of iron test of whether or not someone is 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 split curious as it were is you know how do they answer the question you know is is this is this a change to the labor party that will be more enduring than that of blair or miliband or or kinnock and that i think is the other kind of interesting lesson of the sdp right because they hadn't just lost one leadership election they had been unhappy with harold wilson and they were mostly not thrilled with jim callahan and then they were really really not thrilled with michael foot and there are very few people in the labor party who feel that way even Mm. about Gordon Brown and so that is I think another sort of factor and then if yeah at the next election the Labour Party doesn't win or you know Corbyn stands down unexpectedly for some reason and Emily Thornberry becomes leader of the Labour Party that is the still the thing which keeps a lot of people in Mm. the party is this Mm. idea okay well Labour Party will be a bit more congenial to me particularly of course because the vast majority of Labour MPs their objections to Corbynism are solely about foreign policy and the question of anti-Semitism. Yes, a number of times I've had people say to me, the next leadership election decides us. It's not about now, it's about who the next leader is. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Stephen. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk, where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Bryony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes Store. And next, is wearing the hijab always oppressive? Sutiam Gudazi certainly thinks so. She was made to wear one as a schoolgirl in Iran and writes in this week's magazine of her liberation since she moved to the UK. She joins us down the line now. So, Sutiam, can you tell us a bit more about your experience of wearing the hijab as a child in Iran? Well, I suppose at the time it was kind of normal because everyone else around me was also wearing it. But in terms of kind of the overall aspect, I obviously don't agree with it. I don't think it's the right thing to do force a child to wear it especially for the reasons that we were told that we should be wearing it for I think it's quite insensitive and not the type of thing you should be really be teaching children at that age so what were the reasons you were given it, it was modesty but you know a special type of modesty where you would wear it to stop other men from sinning that's that's kind of the way we were told it would work and you know you know not in just schools by teachers and you yeah. know um, the education system but also when it came to the media and everything else that was how it was portrayed so yeah and why do you just, just explain why you object to that explanation well I don't think I think everyone should have responsibility for themselves I think if men don't want to sin then they should they should take that responsibility upon themselves it's not the, it's not the job of a six-year-old child to be covering themselves to stop a 45-year-old man from sinning by having sexual fantasies about her. It's about that, you know, that child that child should be protected in such a society regardless of whether they're covered up or not. And, you know, it doesn't really do much because in the countries where, you know, you women wear hijab, rape rates are actually quite high. So it's it doesn't really do much. All it does is make women feel like second-class citizens because they're told to cover up, whereas men aren't. And what's been the reaction of those around you who are also Muslim to your views on this? I mean, they obviously don't agree with me, and that's fine. I think it is about choice, and most of them actually do agree that it is about choice at the end. I think the the political backbone on this is about liberty and about being free to do what you want. 
they obviously don't agree with my explanation as to why the hijab is bad in general, but they do agree with, with the right of me to be free to choose. I think when it gets to the parts where I did leave Islam, I think that's where it gets a bit more rocky. But in terms of hijab as a, you know, as a separate issue, they're quite fine, to be honest. And what do you make of the argument that some women who do wear hijabs use, which is that it's actually an opportunity for them to be seen as who they are as a person rather than defined by their hairstyle and makeup and so on, their outward appearance? Um, I mean, they're free to do what they want, but I, I think I don't agree with that argument at all because men aren't, you know, men aren't seen that way. Men don't need to cover up to be a member of society who's seen for the, for the brains and the way they work. And men have different hairstyles as well. And that hairstyle does affect how attractive they look. And, you know, women, women do talk about that. So why is it just women who are meant to cover up to be seen as who they are? If, if, if this is about feminism, then what women should be doing isn't covering up and pleasing men. What they should be doing is fighting to, you know, free themselves in a society where men are looking at them in that way and judging them by their appearance. And to be honest, I don't think that's the case. In the West, everyone's walking without a job, well, most people are anyway. And I don't think in this society there is a problem with men looking at women's hair and thinking, oh, actually, she looks a bit stupid. That I don't think it really works like that. Women are judged by their abilities, and if they're not, we should be we should be fighting to end that rather than covering ourselves up and essentially pleasing men in the end. You know, helping them win. Do you think this is a, an approach that's specific to Islam or do you think that it's something that that women are, are often treated as second-class citizens by other religions as well? Yeah, I mean, religion does tend to be quite discriminatory against women anyway. I, I do think that it stems from the fact that most religions were created hundreds of years ago where misogyny was far more common. But yeah, I don't think it's just in Islam. But the reason I talk about it in Islam is because I've had personal experience of it. I haven't really had personal experience of it in other religions because I was never a follower of those religions. But I do think it does exist. Sutiam, thanks very much. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. And last, is it okay for the royal family to talk about their feelings as much as they do? From Kate Middleton talking about the stress she experiences as a mother, to the latest from Meghan Markle's friends on the global bullying she is experiencing, are the royals indulging too much in a persecution complex? Daily Mail columnist Jan Moyer certainly thinks so, and she writes in this week's issue that, whatever their challenges, at least the royals are able to face them from gilded palaces. She joins me now, together with Victoria Murphy, freelance royals journalist and formerly at the Daily Mirror. So Jan, what are the royals complaining about? Well, I think uh, this is really about the younger royals, and... 
with the Queen, for all the, you know, all the time that we've known the Queen, she has never complained about a single thing. Even Charles and Camilla, who went through a really torrid time, they have never really complained. And now we have this new generation of royals, and I think they have decided that to be relatable to the public and to make themselves popular, they have to kind of connect in a way that that says, hey, look, we're just like you. Now, how can they do that? They're, they're, the thing is, they're not just like us. I mean, they can't, all the kind of worries and fears that ordinary people have about not being able to pay their mortgage or get their kids into a good school um, or, oh God, you know, granny's not very well, she's going to have to come and stay with us. They don't have those kind of worries. So they've made up these kind of other worries that they have, these sort of mental health worries to show the world that they struggle just like we do. And I think that sort of, of course, they've got their their sort of fears and um, problems like anyone does. That's part of the human condition. But I just don't buy this thing that Kate is a really sort of worried mother and it's overwhelming for her. It isn't, you know. She's got she's got help. She's got nannies. She's got chefs. She's got the kids in the great school, and so. I'm getting rather tired of it. So, Victoria, do you think that they are forgetting that one can have empathy without necessarily experiencing? So, you know, we don't require our cancer doctors to have had cancer before they start treating people, for instance. I mean, I certainly don't think that they're making anything up. I think when they express their thoughts and their feelings, I think that that is genuine. I mean, I think... I have to say, I think your opinion will be an unpopular one. It's not one that I've heard expressed many times when they have spoken out about things. And I think when they have talked about their feelings or talked about what they've been through I think actually it has been generally very well received and actually for a very good reason and quite specific and often quite different reasons however actually you know I cover the royals and have done for many years and you know one of the delights of being a royal correspondent covering every single thing is that you have to be across absolutely everything that every royal has said or done publicly every single day and you know during the course of my time covering the royals actually they haven't really spoken that much, I don't think, about their feelings or about their thoughts. I think there are some times when they have, and those times stand out precisely because they are quite rare. And, And I think, you know, times that they have done that, I know, I think in your piece that you talk about, you know, the anniversary of Diana's death, and I certainly don't think that was about William and Harry really wanting to kind of tell everyone about how they felt about that. I actually think that was very much about them wanting to control the narrative. You know, they knew that at the anniversary of her death, there would be hundreds and thousands of stories written around the world, and there was. And I think that they wanted to make sure that her memory was honoured in a way that that they wanted it to be at that time when people were going to be talking about it. And I think that's why they agreed to do that. And we haven't heard them do that since. And I don't think they will do that again. I think that was a sort of one-off for the 20th anniversary. But it is the case that the roles are being more expressive, perhaps, than previous generations. Jan, isn't that just because the public are too? People like to talk about their feelings more. It's much easier to talk about having a mental health problem, for instance, and be matter-of-fact about that. Well, I mean, I think there's... (laughs) What's wrong with bottling it all up? That's what I say. I mean, that's kind of a lot of sort of uh, rare admissions. I mean, you know, we, we are in this new narrative where they are talking about their feelings more and how they and how they've sort of suffered more. I mean, the point I make in my article is that sort of... You know, they have have talked about losing their mother and, of course, that's absolutely terrible. And they have talked about their mental health and, and, and obviously 
you know, we don't want them to be suffering. But they were bereaved, you know, they're, they're not sort of mentally ill. And what I sort of worry about is that people who, you know, people who do have real difficulties are getting overshadowed in this, or are not getting the help that they need, because there are so many people who are just have, feeling blue or being brought down a little bit by life. And it's all going under this umbrella of mental illness. And, and I don't think that it is. Victoria, do you accept that? Well, I mean, I'm definitely not a mental health expert, so I. But but I do think that um, the times when you know they've got this big campaign that's been an ongoing campaign for a number of years about highlighting mental health, and I think one of the things that they've been very keen to do is encourage people to talk about it and talk about the small things so they don't become big things, you know. And I, I think that's very important to them that they open up that conversation, and. I think any time they have talked a little bit about their feelings, I think that they have done so to open up the conversation to kind of just make the point, hey, we all have we all have these feelings and let, let's talk about them. And I think perhaps in your case, maybe damned if they do, but I think actually there would be a lot of people waiting to jump on them and, and perhaps call them hypocritical if they were launching this huge campaign, encouraging people to talk and they were refusing to say anything about their own experiences or thoughts. And one of the more recent examples of royals being perhaps not directly outspoken, but apparently in touch with the media in one way or the other is Meghan Markle, whose friends have briefed an American magazine recently about her family, well, feud, I think is probably the the way of describing it. Jan, that's quite a departure for the monarchy, isn't it? Yes, and I didn't think it was a clever thing for her to do, really. And and we can see the response almost immediately from her father, who then released a letter which he purported to be from her. I mean, I think the thing is, I think Meghan is having a very difficult time. One can see the situation with her father and her rather hateful half-sister. And now I can see that even if she had invited them to the wedding, you know, even if the half-sister had come to the wedding, it never would have been enough. She always would have wanted more. So now Meghan is in the situation where we presume that these friends did this with her approval and gave this, you know, interview to People magazine and Meghan was one wonderful she's a paragon she does her own makeup she roasts chickens she's completely super fabulous human being and does nothing wrong and it almost immediately backfired with her father then releasing this letter so you know where does she go from here yes she's having a rather difficult time but I would suggest that it's nothing compared to what the Duchess of Cornwall went through for for many many years up to and after that she married Prince Charles Uh, You know, their relationship was born in difficulty. She was having an affair with with Prince Charles. Uh, She had huge amounts of public vilification, and she just had to deal with that. I mean, the thing is, you can't control that. You can't sort of control that narrative. And now the Duchess of Cornwall has never been more popular, and I think the way to to deal with that is just to keep quiet. It's the only way through it. Just to try to to ride it out. Victoria, is there not also a risk that if the royals if if Harry, Meghan and perhaps even William and Kate adopt more of a kind of celebrity way of approaching things rather than the palace way which is generally not to to really comment on anything that people start to wonder why bother paying 
for them? Why bother sustaining them financially if really they can operate in the same way as, I guess, you know, George Clooney or someone like that? Yeah, I mean, they are a publicly funded institution and they're publicly funded because of the work that they do, not necessarily because of how they conduct themselves. So, you know, they carry out official engagements, um, hundreds of official engagements every year. And they, you know, they do tours, they travel, they represent Britain um, and they obviously have their charitable causes. I think there is a point to be made about the, um, I think each royal generation is, is a product of their generation and I think it's right to say that the young royals are doing things differently to the Queen. She is more more formal. You know, Fit Prince Philip I think was quoted in his 90th birthday as being asked about his t- childhood which was quite turbulent and he just kind of said, you know, you just get on with it and he, you know, he wasn't interested in having a discussion about how he felt about that and I think that the younger royals, I think there's a growing awareness and realisation in society as a whole of, of talking about things and I think that that they, the way that they're working reflects that. And I think that's actually quite important because if the monarchy doesn't reflect the time in which it exists, then there is a danger that it will become irrelevant. And I think the Queen, more than anyone, is is aware of that. I mean, the question of how they handle things like attention and whether they, how they're aides operate in their press aides operate in terms of um, briefing and that kind of thing is a slightly different question I think um, and I, I think by and large what, what we have seen from the young royals there, ha- there has been a reluctance for them to put information out there to even to guide on certain stories I think you know it has been difficult for them because they don't they don't like to go down this route of guiding when things are wrong because then people then know if they don't say anything then it's right and that's you know that's what will happen so no comment right well it's obviously right and that's not what they want to happen but they're certainly not operating in the way that you maybe a Hollywood PR would operate and you know extensively briefing behind the scenes you know that's I'm not aware of that happening at all. Jan do you think they're doing a good job in terms of their official responsibilities? Yes, I mean, you know, they have. A, there's a very difficult path that they have to tread. They have to be apolitical. They have. They can't upset anyone. Yes, I do. I think. I think both of them are pretty wonderful duchesses. They've kind of perfected that knack of sort of looking absolutely thrilled to be meeting whoever they're they're meeting. But I think part of the problem with the way that they're being perceived is because it's just so com- tightly controlled, you know, by the palace and by the officials. So they're con- on the one hand, they're controlling everything. There's hardly any access. Everything is stage managed and organised. And on the other hand, they seem to kind of want to demand being popular and, and people loving them. And I think it's a much more complicated situation than that. Thank you, Victoria. And thank you, Jan. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as John Rick MacArthur on the Jeff Bezos scandal, Jess Phillips' diary and more. And we have a time-limited offer. Yes, it's one of those offers that doesn't make sense economically, which means you should definitely go for it. It's 12 issues for £12, plus a £10 Amazon voucher. Do the maths and then go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.